free is, nigga? What's free? Free is when nobody else can tell us what to be. Free is when the TV ain't controlling what we see. Told my niggas I need you. Through all the fame, you know I stay true. Pray my niggas stay free. Made a few mistakes, but this ain't where I wanna be. Before I'm judged by 12, put a 12 on my feet. In the land of the free where the blacks enslave. Three fifths of a man, I believe's the phrase. I'm 50% of Duce and it's dead free, yeah. 100% of Ace of Spade, worth half a beat. Uh. Rock Nation, half of that, that's my piece. 100% of title to bust it up with my cheese. Uh. Smokes, my niggas won't ever work together. You run a checker, but they never give you leverage. No red hat, don't Michael and Prince me and yay. They separate you when you got Michael and Prince's DNA. Uh. I ain't one of these house niggas you bought. My house like a resort. My house bigger than yours, my spot. Come on, man. My route better, of course. We started without food in our mouth. They gave us pork and pig intestines. Shit you discarded that we ingested. We made the project a wave. You came back, reinvested, and gentrified it. Took niggas since the pride. Now how that's free? And them people stole the soul and hit niggas with 360s. I ain't got a billion streams, got a billion dollars. Inflating numbers like we po' be happy about this. We was praising Billboard, but we were young. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome back. Welcome back. So, what is the price of empathy and caring? This is a question I've been pondering for the last several weeks. It's really odd to live in a world where the attributes of insight, sensitivity, and compassion are looked at as such anomalies that those of us who actually try to consider other people's feelings in that matter are considered like left-wing extremists. We are in the month of May, but in April, a number of societal shifts had taken place. A white man with an ego the size of a moon decided to take on the challenge of reframing the idea of freedom of thoughts and expression. Now, the ironic thing is by listening to that particular description, it's really hard to determine who I'm talking about, which makes the statement even more fascinating. Well, maybe this will help. This white man decided that the best way to increase his profile was to take on an endeavor that while, yes, giving him a much decided spotlight he so craved, trumping the idea that his actions are designed to free the subject matter in question. By doing so, though, he thought may have been a little bit more foolhardy than originally thought because the subject entity will cost a multi-billion dollar bill. I still don't know what I'm talking about. All right, let me try this again. So this white man is being trumpeted by scores of people on the right who are tired of left-wing conglomerates controlling their freedom of expression and trying to indoctrinate society with their left-wing thoughts. Still having a hard time deciphering who I'm talking about? What about this? He most recently was profiled by the Wall Street Journal as an intellectual thought provocateur. Okay, 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 last one. This man is not doing this because he cares about the goodwill of people. No, he's doing this really as an exhibition of ego and power. Yeah, I can see why you're having a hard time trying to figure out who this person is or actually decipher which person I'm talking about. Because oddly enough... Both Elon Musk and Governor Santos have been on a conservative tidal wave as of late, running a gamut on their opposition, using power and prestige to push through their objective at almost, almost a perpendicular race of who can be the most powerful man on the planet, with DeSantis aiming for the White House in 2024 and Elon aiming for, well, what seems to be like a modern-day Bond villain. Elon, of course, taking on the world's biggest intellectual thought platform by trying to purchase it and ostensibly change how communication ideas are exchanged citing freedom as optimum objective, 
saying that Twitter has operated with a left-wing slanted program. And of course, DeSantis willingly trying to take on the biggest media conglomerate in Disney by fashioning them as an indoctrinating left-wing bias in their programming. Wait, that sounds weird. It's almost like there's this quiet war campaign that's happening right in front of our eyes with powerful white men pushing conservative talking points, narratives, and winning the messaging war. But they do bring up a fascinating question. What is freedom exchange? Is society being conditioned to regulate proper ideal to communication? And, what, and why does it seem like this newfound conservative push for freedom has an underlining tone of anti-blackness? Could it be because while the governor trampezing across the country building up his national profile is simultaneously and quietly destroying black voting districts and fighting against federal ruling that prohibited Florida's racist voting laws? Or Elon trying to usher in a wave of right-wing conservatives who argue that their views, no matter how bigoted and racist, should be allowed to not only express themselves freely, but most importantly, engage, troll, and intimidate those who think differently. What does this, this freedom that both men claim society is lacking look like for the surrounding world, and in particular black folk? Should freedom be at the detriment of the human compassion? Should freedom be the opposite side of human decency? Should freedom be weird? Should be a weird calling card for the white wing, right-wing extremism? Is that really what freedom is? Freedom to inflict harm no matter what the cost? It literally costs you nothing to be a decent human being. But even in that, there are those who say that the price of compassion should be no greater than their own self-interest. So in reality, the question shouldn't be whether freedom is the new age, is freedom, whether freedom is the new age war. The real question is, what does the, real, what does the true intrinsic value of free look like to us? What's free? Welcome to Uncultural Bias Podcast. My name is Kamara Williams. I'm your host. On our show, we say that culture is a matter of perspective and opinion. After all, culture is another way to say discovery. We're on culture, we're biased, and we're black. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you are listening, a returning listener, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. So, whether you're returning or a first-time listener, we just ask that you guys continue to share this, this podcast with your friends, family, colleagues, even people you don't like, we don't care. Just share the podcast. If you're listening on Apple, um, go on to the Apple a podcast website or on your app and go ahead and leave a rating whether a five-star rating leave a review it's a way for apple to engage and see how you engage and how people are interacting with this podcast um so if we're going to give a shout out to our sponsors this week uh giving a big big shout out to coleman law um you can reach them at 850-597-2990 if you're looking for a tax attorney or people who are um, dealing, if you're a person who's dealing with some tax issues or business issues, please contact Coleman Law at 850-597-2990 or www.coleman.law. Um, if you're in the market for real estate, contact Keystone Global Real Estate at 407-680-8510. Of course, KeystoneGlobalRealEstate.com. Of course, if you're in the market for trust, wills, guardianship, estate planning, all that fun stuff, contact Smith & Williams Trial Group. You can reach us at 888-798-4529 or 888-798-4529. SWTG Law, and of course, um, SWTGLaw.com and C. Williams at SWTGLaw.com. All right, brilliant. Let's get into our guest. And I'm actually going to start off with, I got two incredible, uh, dynamic uh, young women that are going to join me on this podcast. I'm going to start off with Camille. And she is a uh, founder and partner of Virtuous Legal Group. Camille, you still with us? I'm here. Good afternoon. How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> How you feel? 
I'm doing great. Can't complain. Can't, Can't complain. complain. All right. Tell me a little bit about your um, situation, your your law group and everything. Let the, Who let I am and why I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, first, Kamara, let me thank you for having me on. Um, mm. I'm very glad that you are taking up this space, sharing your thought leadership. It's important to amplify voices like yours. So thank you for um, taking up this space and, and occupying this platform. Um, my name is Camille Evans. I'm an attorney here in Orlando. I have um, the benefit of having co-founded Virtus LLP with Hope Newsom. We are a business and finance boutique law firm. Um, we are based here in Windermere, Florida. We serve financial institutions, governments, entrepreneurs, and small businesses, and all things business and finance. Um, the majority of my practice is focused on representing uh, business, I'm sorry, governments and banks in the issuance and lending of uh, municipal debt um, on both a private and, and public basis. All right. Perfect. And, you know, for those uh, who are dumb like me, that means she handles big money and especially she has a, a large history in bonds. So we're going to talk about bond debt with, you know, the purchasing of, um, you know, try, trying to purchase bond debt and how that actually applies not only to Florida, but also what Elon was trying to do. All right. Our next a uh, special guest is Tiffany Spencer, and she is uh, the founder and creator of HBO, HBCU Force, as well as a, um, I guess, a, um, are you founder or board member of the Black Orlando Tech? Um, so today I'm a board member. Okay. Uh, I was not the founder, but I helped to kind of start or help um, guide us from being just a meetup group and actually did the, um, the 501c3 certification for us and moved us from just a meetup group into an actual nonprofit. Okay. Okay. Tell us a little bit about HBCU Force. <laughs> yeah. So I'm Tiffany Spencer. I'm actually the founder and executive director of what's now called Tech Forward. Okay. Um, Tech Forward start, started in 2019 as HBCU Force because the original idea was to expose HBCU students to careers um, in the Salesforce ecosystem. And today, TechBoard is a nonprofit organization that exposes marginalized communities to cloud and SaaS-based technologies and career paths to help participants be more marketable, obtain higher paying jobs and career opportunities. I am also, or was the co-founder and COO of eSource Consulting Group, which is a Salesforce implementation partner. And our company was re recently acquired by Bitwise Industries. So Technically, today, I'm the VP of Salesforce Partnerships for Bitwise Industries, and then I'm the board chair for Black Orlando Tech, which started out as a meetup group, so I was really not the founder or one of the co-founders, um, but there were a few people in Orlando that got together, decided they wanted to, you know, have Black people meet up in Orlando because people have this impression that there's not a Black tech scene there, and so I was the president for a few years, um, helped to get us more organized, and now I'm the board chair. All right. Wonderful. And then honestly, Tiffany, I wanted you to be on here because I know you you mentioned it, but um, just to really emphasize that you have a you know, lot of interest and focus on the tech. And I'm sure you have opinions on what's happening, not only um, what's happening on social media, but also specifically with Elon trying to purchase. And what does that mean for um, just communication and just um, creatives in that space and just black expression? So. Uh, let's get right into it, man. First of all, guys, thank you guys for joining, um, jumping on this podcast. And um, 
I'm going to start off with you, Camille. And I know we mentioned uh, with DeSantis and everything that was going on with him trying to, in the last last month, trying to, I guess, take on Disney and then finding out later on that their bond debt and everything like that. Um, so if you can kind of walk us through, like, what does that mean? I know that the they were, Disney instituted a, had instituted a, <laughs> A proclamation saying that listen this is a 1960 uh this rule was put in in 1967 so we're kind of grandfathered in and so therefore if this is going to be instituted there is going to have to be a debt paid am i correct on that so i think the best way to focus on it and frame the issue um kamara is that the reedy creek improvement district um the iteration that exists today mm-hmm. was established by a special act of the legislature Um, And in that special act, they granted the property owners um, of Reedy Creek, which, of course, by and large is 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 Walt Disney World companies um, or a holding thereof, uh, the right to provide limited um, special limited purpose uh, governmental powers. And the reason why they do that. And let me pause and say before we go any further that that is a structure that is used globally nationally and throughout Florida. I think right now Florida has about 1800 um, special districts in existence. And, you know, that doesn't include those that have been dissolved. Um, And they, they are existed. They are created for various different reasons. Sometimes it's for the provision of utilities. Sometimes it's for community development. Sometimes they have broader powers, but still short of what our normal governmental powers are. And the idea is that these districts allow us to narrowly properly tailor the needs of that district to um, the infrastructure that is built to support it. And that's why it's an efficient strategy utilized because if you had a local government that was focused on serving the entirety of Orange County and then also the entirety of Osceola County, um, you you have those two separate entities in and of themselves, but then them having disjointed approaches to how they regulate and, and, and develop and, you know, support the infrastructure needs of, of that large district, that um, footprint that, that Disney takes on. So it's, it's a very um, common and significant strategy for, you know, tailoring, tailoring government. The, obvious, you know, um, criticism that can be received is that you kind of create this self-governing entity that allows you to do what you want. Um, But of course, you know, every governmental entity within the state is limited at some point to the powers that the the constitution and or the, the, the statutes authorize. So there's not just, it's not the wild, wild west. Right. Um, and, and, and so what happens is that Every government in Florida and throughout the world will utilize debt as a strategy to finance their improvements. For example, you know, you might need new roads and you don't have the however many hundred million you need today to finance that entire project. So I'm like cash on hand. That's what you're saying. Like right, you don't have cash on hand to do it. And as well, you know, I'm sure you're aware that sometimes it's not wise to put cash on everything when you can utilize other money, right? OPM. 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 Look, OPM runs the world. Right. So, um, so what happens is that you end up with a scenario where they've issued debt and, and it's very important to understand there are many different classes of debt, but there are key structures that key elements that you have to have. You have to have a borrower, you have to have a lender, right. you have to have an amount, you have to re- have a repayment plan 
and you have to have the security for that debt. And that security for that debt is where all the bells and whistles come in. And that's where you basically tie up all the cross all the T's, dot all the I's to make an investor confident that they are going to actually receive repayment of the funds that they've loaned out plus interest. Um, and so what happens is to make sure that in a governmental capacity, you don't run into an area where a scenario where a government can just, you know, wave their wand and turn around and, and, and make their debt disappear. You have various covenants built in that provide that when you create a special district, the entity that creates that special district covenants that there will not be an absolute dissolution of that district without the um, mm. a, a demonstrated plan, you know, an approved plan to accommodate the obligations. It's similar to how yeah. in a regular contract you would have a limited right for assignment. Right. It's I'm not just going to let anybody take on my debt. Right. Right. And so it's designed to protect, let's say, the, the state or the local government from like, all right, this person's like, all right, we're no longer going to, we no longer need this property or this area. So we're going to go ahead and balance it. Like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Y'all got some things to kind of tie up. Well, so actually, um, in, in the financials perspective, the, the first person, the first party that's being protected is the investor. So right. that's the okay. lender. Right, right. So, I mean, that that's really what the safety mechanism is there for, to prevent them from having nobody to have recourse against. Um, number two, the other idea that it, it, it protects the district itself as, in its own existence is, is in some way, you know, realistic because it needs to be a viable entity. Just like when you're doing anything in the corporate realm, you're going to do a review of the due diligence and the, the viability of that entity, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing happens to governmental entities. And so you need to make sure that it's legitimate from a, from a contracting perspective. You need to make sure it's legitimate from various different you know, regulatory perspectives. What is a bond for those who are ignorant? Great question. Great question. And I usually start there, so I should, probably should have started there. So a bond is the same thing as the mortgage note you sign when you buy a house, right? right? right. When anyone buys a house and they get a mortgage, there's actually a note, a promissory note. Right. And um, in the case of a mortgage, we promise to pay certain dollars. And if we don't turn around and pay, they have the right to, the mortgage company has the right to repossess the house, to, right. to foreclose on the lien on the house. Right. Um, in the case of bonds, because governments receive so many different types of revenues and assets, they're able to create what we call different bond programs. So it's, you might have one based on sales tax revenues, one based on tourist development tax revenues, one based on parking revenues, what have you. And what it happens is, say we are the city of Orlando and we need to build a fire station. And we're going to promise to, we're going to lend the, um, borrow the money from a bank, the bank in turn, we give them a bond, just like we would have done in the mortgage. Instead of a note, we're giving them a bond. Right. But similar to stocks that are publicly traded in a publicly traded capacity, bonds are actually broken down. So you might have $10 million in bonds, but then you break them down into $5,000 denominations. And those small pieces are then traded on the public market. Gotcha. And so it's essentially, it's an IOU mm-hmm. that has been baked in all the terms that regard it are locked in and is supposed to remain in existence for whatever that life of that debt is. So as long as it's being traded, as long as it's a live debt, it's traded on the open market. And me as an investor 
can be confident when I'm buying that bond seven years, 10 months into from however long ago it was initially issued that the terms are the same. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So and I'm, I'm going to bring you in a little bit, Tiffany. I just want to one more follow up question because I am like I'm not like Chuck Todd. I actually ask follow up questions here. <laughs> so um, when you saw that the <laughs> foolishness that was happening in Tallahassee and uh, and then Disney silently sent it out to their investors. Right. That, mm-hmm. you know, um, the bond had to be paid back. Uh, explain that to the are you familiar, you familiar with that note that they sent out? Yes. Yeah, okay. I'm familiar with it, but I will tell you that Disney, you you are Disney's position in this is just one at play. Right. You have to think about it. If the district has approximately not just shy of a billion dollars in outstanding bonds, that means they have bondholders who have positions that are going to entitle them to pursue remedies mm-hmm. in the case their debt is being in any way um, uh, breached. First and priority creditors. That, Huh? First priority creditors. Basically, yeah. exactly. And, and, and in this case, you know, I told you about how bonds are broken down into smaller pieces right. and you and I can buy them. But, you know, the other people who buy them are, are the funds, you know, the insurance, the insurance companies, right. the um, municipal bond funds, they buy them and they hold very large positions. Right. And it is not uncommon for them to make um, uh, preventative, take preventative steps to pursue litigation. So it's not just Reedy Creek pursuing strategies to defend the action of the legislature, but it's also the, the various bondholders. And remind you, each series of bonds has a majority bondholder, each type of bonds, I should say, has a majority bondholder or multiple. So there are a number of di- different brilliant analysts and um, <laughs> lawyers who are looking at this. But to your point about the, 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 the quickness of the process, and just the fact that there is so much that usually we need to take steps. The problem is that the legislature acted without having done a fiscal analysis, without right. doing any, anything that is normally a part of a, a, a standard legislative process. Right. Um, and all of those things are not just bells and whistles for show. They're actually implemented to make sure that we are um, passing legislation that works. Right. Um, in, in a normal sense, in a, in a normal process, we would not be at the point of dissolution without having had extensive conversations with outstanding investors, with the resulting receiving entities, the Orange County, Osceola County, right. um, the staff, the, the other stakeholders. You remember, because remember, this government is still a representative of the people. Right. So there are stakeholders um, like the firefighters who are members of the um, of, of the Reedy Click employment. Um, so with that, all of that having been skipped, it is no surprise that they built in 14 months to allow the dissolution before the sunset actually happens, right. because everybody knows that this is absolutely a political grandstanding more than it is the end result. Absolutely. And, it, and, and, and I, I think it's not ironic, and I'm not going to steal your thunder, that you, you've looped these two topics together, because right now the world is chomping at the bit at grandstanding definitive steps right that have not closed right, right. so you right. know we're we're, we're 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 fired up but there's lots of different pieces and i i personally um i, I personally wouldn't be surprised if um two things lastly I, and i'll shut up the that number one that the um investing public will continue to have a very harsh scrutiny of this 
fact pattern. Because as I mentioned, you have 1800 other special districts, not that they all have outstanding debt. But if, um, and one of the, I think Fitch sent a, um, an alert out, the state made a statement saying it was one of the um, rating agencies saying that they placed Reedy Creek on negative watch because they are concerned about the political environment that will just dissolve a district without resolving the underlying responsibilities in advance. That's big because if that carries a um, underwriting drag, the cost of capital for other special districts in the state of Florida could be similar, could be very negatively impacted. Right. And then last, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 you're good. I'm, I'm, I'm rocking with you. Keep going. It's good. <laughs> no, and I, and I was going to say, you know, the last thing that I other, I also expect is that you're not going to have a scenario where you're going to get a lot of other government, I'm sorry, other corporate entities to stand up and say something because of the nature of the grandstanding that, you know, occurs. So nobody wants to be the next hand that gets smacked. Right. Um, But to me, it seems that it's going to be critical to see how the rest of the world either accommodates or says, no, we can't do this. If it stays and it actually dissolves, I think you'll probably end up with some level of an interlocal agreement between Osceola and Orange counties that creates that recreates a another district similar to uh, Reedy Creek. Right. So first of all, that was fire. Uh, that was great because for a lot of people, they're like, I don't know what's happening. And I, I think this is important to have this, you know, technical understanding of what's happening before we have the political conversation or the social conversation. We need a basis of like what's actually the the idea behind Reedy Creek and the bond issue and the debt mm-hmm. and all that. Um, so Tiffany, I'm going to loop you in here and I'm going to preface this by saying what, how Camille ended. We understand that, um, not ended because obviously she's still here, but um, you know how uh, that portion of the explanation, how she talked about, there was a lot of political grandstanding and I did a, a quick, quick video. I said like, honestly, as you know, Camille mentioned there, in June, 2023 is when this is actually supposed to be instituted. So the idea Behind that was, in my opinion, was after midterms, right? <laughs> Conveniently, and after the legislative session, um, the in two thousand twenty-three. Uh, so a lot of things have to happen, including, you know, Republicans come back and be like, you know, we were just joking. We're going to kind of pull that, you know, we're going to repeal that law, or we're going to take some teeth out of it, or we're going to, um, you know, or we're we're totally just going to ignore that it ever happened and blase squase. But in your opinion. How did you see like all that political grandstanding happening? Because we kind of uh, anybody with like two eyes, two ears, you know, even a nose can see, hear, and smell the bullshit that was coming um, emanating from Tallahassee. Can we, Tiff? You here? Oh. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts? You know, all of that was. It was really interesting to hear Camille go through all of that information. And as a, you know, from my standpoint, we work a lot with the Orlando Economic Partnership. And so I know the effort that those organizations put into actually recruiting companies to Orlando and to Florida. And yeah. so I know one of the things that companies and businesses do not like is instability. Right. And so the fact that he would, in a sense, you know, go against what Republicans are truly say they're for, right? Business and bringing money to the to the districts. For him to basically go against those efforts is really interesting to me. And one of the things that I asked a friend is that, 
you know, how do those numbers play out for him? If Disney, how much money do you think Disney would actually put up to, um, to basically go against or, or go after DeSantis for this move? Like, is that something Disney's going to do? I know they, you know, they're not going to publicize that, but is that something and can he handle that? Like, what are the actual repercussions of this? Not only for this election, but long term, are businesses now going to say, I don't know about this. If this is how DeSantis is going to play, I may not move my headquarters there because the same type of thing that he's trying to go, you know, do away with, they may need in order to, or that might be something governments and local organizations are trying to use to get companies to move. And so I just don't understand as far as dollars and cents, how this benefits DeSantis and the Republican Party in Florida, or is it not really, you know, will it not impact them? Well, actually, I think it actually benefits DeSantis. It may not benefit the Republican Party, but it benefits DeSantis in one, one way because it enhances his national profile. Um, let's talk about dollars and cents here. So you talked about, uh, number one, Disney, I believe, in my opinion, and you guys can chime in in here, is not going to respond politically to this because they're not in the business of making political statements. They're an uh, international conglomerate, and they understand that the wave of well, things... With their money. Pardon? Respond with their money, yeah. not, not an actual statement. Right, yeah, but I, I even think they may not even respond monetarily to this because I think they're going to let this, you know, the the winds die down a little bit. They may, you know, do some slick things here and there, but they're not going to be in a position of trying to take hard and fast political positions because they understand that they got to make money on both sides of the aisle as far as people who are, you know, interested in spending Disney dollars. And so for me, I look at it like Disney's like, yeah, this is a lot of hot air. A lot of things have to happen, as Camille stated. Um, a lot of moving parts before this. Team, you know, we understand this is a political ploy in order to enhance DeSantis. Why well, I said enhance DeSantis because yeah, let's talk dollars and cents. Let's say Disney maxed out their donation at fifty thousand dollars to him to his campaign. He's looking at it like, I don't really need. I don't need the fifty thousand dollars if I can get, you know, five million dollars from national donors who look at me as this, you know, paramour of right wing ideology. And so he's like, it. I can go against the big bad wolf of, you know, Disney and frame them as this left-wing bastion of intellectual thought and that, you know, it was against us. And, you know, so it's like, you know, I actually can help. You know, there's no such thing as bad press, right? There's good good press enhances the profile. Now, Republicans, on the other hand, they, you know, they, they're not seeing, they can't see the, 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 the forge from the trees at this point because it's like, that's not really the smart thing. But, of course... They're not the leader of the party, DeSantis is, so they have to kind of march along to the beat of what their, you know, king uh, is saying in the state of Florida. And so I believe, you know, to answer that that question, I think it's a little bit more complicated, but I think this is more or less about DeSantis and less about Republican Party. Do you agree, Tiffany? And, you know, let you, you can chime in on that. Well, I, I was going to say, I, I agree. I think that um, this is absolutely, you know, 2024 strategy. Yeah. Um, and, and quite frankly, I, I have to say it, 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 it's a heck of a game of chess um, because, you know, the number one, you took the entire spotlight away from the fact that at the same time you were eliminating 50% of the black congressional districts in the right. state of Florida right. through a right. procedure that was absolutely inconsistent with the law and, and, and process that has been 
outlined. Um, you have, you've proven that you have the absolute will of your state legislature to do whatever you say, whenever right. you get good and ready. Right. Um, and at the same time, you have done nothing but given the biggest high five to your base. Right. And I think it's super ironic that he made the announcement that they were going to put Reedy Creek's dissolution on the special um, on the on the special session agenda while standing in the villages. Yeah. And the villages is his <laughs> base. Right. But you know what also is the villages? A special the villages district. is a community based on 17 plus special districts. Yeah. All of which have outstanding debt. Right. All of which have the same investors who probably have Reedy Creek paper, have villages paper. And so it's that level of instability to your point, Kamar, you're spot on. This is a DeSantis play. Now, how far everybody's going to let that instability go is the next big question. Unfortunately, I think that history shows us that it can go much further than we all think that it should be before somebody's ready to, 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 to raise their hand. Yeah, yeah. And then similar to what you were saying before with the whole Twitter deal, that deal is also not done. Right. And so there's a ton of think pieces and reactions to a deal that I don't know how far out before it's actually signed. And there's already reports coming out that Musk has already violated the terms of the initial agreement. And right. so even that is really just interesting when you look at, did he really want to buy Twitter and other aspects of does what he's saying that he's doing this for free speech really aligned with Musk history with quote unquote free speech? And is that really the play? Right. Um, so there's reports coming out. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. My apologies. Keep going, Tiff. No, I was going to say, you know, people are focusing on Twitter and the free speech, which I think is a risk. Right. The other bigger thing, though, is this idea of billionaires buying communication and media platforms. Yeah. And Twitter has a lot of data. Right. And so we might be focusing all on the wrong thing if this deal even goes through. Right. So actually, mm -hmm. let's let's put a pin on that because I do want to explore. That's a really good conversation. And I want to get into that. Uh, but Tiffany, I, I, but I want to keep in this Twitter space. Though, because um, I do find it fascinating of Elon uh, purchasing of trying to purchase uh, Twitter and the idea that Twitter is a free platform. <laughs> so, you know, and so the idea that he's purchasing something that, you know, people get jump on in order, you know, for freedom and, you know, they don't have to pay a fee. Um, it's. Like, what is the value? And, I, and I'm, I'm going to preface it by saying this. I, I'm i explaining what I believe the value is, is in Black Twitter. It's been saying that for the last two weeks, how Black Twitter actually raised the value of Twitter because it's the centrifuge of thought and even hilarity. And, you know, it's often where even politics and social issues, when things break around the world, it's usually Twitter that is the first um, it is, it is the first entity that starts, you know, creating this narrative. There's an old adage they say on social media, old, as you say, but um, Twitter sees it first. Uh, Instagram takes a picture of it second. And Facebook, oh, excuse me, Twitter sees it first. Instagram takes a picture of it second. Um, TikTok makes a video of it. And then Facebook finds out about it a week later. And so, like, you know, like, it's because, so Twitter, uh, it's weird because 
honestly, it has the less amount of viewers, like, uh, uh, excuse me, users. I think Facebook, and then there's there's um, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and then Twitter. But it is the leading communicative device around the world, which I I don't is that am I accurate with that Tiff? So it's interesting, right? So as you said, if you talk to the young people today, Facebook is definitely not leading because right. I've been told by my mentee that Facebook is for the old folks. Right. <laughs> she tells me I'm a member of the Facebook generation. And so the young people I know, right, Ruth, um, the young people are using Snapchat and TikTok. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, Twitter is definitely for a certain demographic you know, news travels fast. But if you want to go back to what he's actually saying, right, where is the value? Uh, so one, it's it's very up in the air, right? Because what, what he has said, and I think he just tweeted yesterday, is that by free speech, he means that, you know, that which simply matches the law. And that he's saying that I am against censorship that goes far beyond the law. And so if people want less free speech, they will ask the government to pass laws to that effect. Right. And therefore, he feels like Twitter was going beyond the will of the people. But First Amendment rights don't apply to private companies, right? And so the other thing he has said is about Twitter being less of a company and a profit machine and more like a utility. That doesn't match, right? Mm. Because a public utility is regulated, is, you know, has taxes. <laughs> yes, it's right. regulated. Right. And so none of that matches. Right. And so if you go again, what is the value here? And yes, I think there's a couple places where he's going to want to maybe utilize Twitter, right? So one is going to be to get his word out, right? Or be able to see where people are, what's trending, what are people liking, right? It's all in the data and how it's used. If you talk about the upcoming election, if you talk about his own AI and robots that he's trying to train and you know, work on. So there's so many ways that, that he could possibly utilize Twitter if mm-hmm. the sale goes through. I, I, I want to go, I want to walk into that, uh, but I want to do the tie in here with DeSantis and the idea that both of these people have made plays in talking about freedom of comp- freedom of speech, right? And then so DeSantis, obviously he got mad with Disney making a comment on, you know, on the Republican initiative of their bill of the, quote unquote, you know, don't say gay bill and punishing them for a freedom of comfort, the freedom of their statement and, you know, talk about First Amendment and then using that, using his platform, his his power position to, you know, essentially try to take away their expression on how their actions. And in the same in the same token, you have somebody like uh, Elon Musk, uh, who has taken on this uh, torch Tiki torch (laughs) (laughs) of uh, trying to promote this quote unquote freedom of expression. However, it's really the, it's really the freedom of expression for a certain group um, because they feel like they've been isolated out of a space. And you do, and you know, I want you and you know, uh, Camille, I want you to chime in on here too. Um, Do you guys see that there's a kind of like a weird, like, it's like a, it's like a weird amalgamation of like this push towards ad- trying to identify what exactly is freedom of speech, right? You know, do you, do you guys see what I'm right. saying? Like, 
It's like freedom of speech with no consequences is what I hear him trying to say. But at the same time, he has blocked people on Twitter. He he tried to buy out the, the young man that was tracking his jet. And so it's like, I want to be able to promote and say what I want with no consequence, except when I don't like it. And right. so <laughs> it's, right. it's very weird to, you know, to say, what is that? What is actual free speech at this? And he also said that he wanted to get rid of the bots. Well, I, I read a Twitter comment and somebody said, well, if the bots are made by people, isn't that free speech too? Even if it's coming from a bot. And <laughs> right. So, <laughs> right. Right. Like, you know, I have to say, I think that Tiffany's spot on, like, so free speech is a very convenient cause to throw all your resources behind. Mm. Even if you can't agree with my tactics, my mission should be beyond reproach, right? Mm. If I am preserving this absolute best, you know, important interest for us as people, but as Tiffany pointed out earlier, what he's actually buying is the value of what access to people and their opinions and forming those opinions and understanding the rate at which different types of messages carry and how they carry and to whom they carry. And, you know, Kamara, you mentioned the value of black Twitter and how it's, it's it, but that I, respectfully, and I, and I love that. And I agree respectfully, that also shows you the value of your echo chamber that Twitter supports mm -hmm. because of the fact that if you have that black Twitter, you also have Ukrainian Twitter. Yeah. You also have, Eastern African yeah. Twitter. You also have, you name it. You right. know what I mean? Right. And so you're getting all of that and right. you're getting the ability to inform it, shape it, sell it, it all those things. And so um, I think, I think this is absolutely a play for control. Right. Um, and also what you get to see when you have a lot of money and a lot of things to leverage or a lot of OPM, Right, right. <laughs> and, and and you get to play with that at a different level. And, and, and I will say one other thing. This is also politically right, perfectly timed on the same trajectory. This takes you into midterm elections. Yeah. This takes you because I think the scheduled uh, closing is October. So this takes you right into midterm elections. And also it gives him a great narrative. If the deal falls through, Twitter has to pay him a billion. If Twitter walks the Twitter has to pay him a billion dollars. If he walks, he has to pay Twitter a billion dollars. Right. Do he look worried about a billion dollars? No. But if he's able to get the narrative that Twitter walked from him on a billion dollars, then you have all those stockholders who are currently looking at a premium payout who are now going to have to not have it. And he's going to have the benefit of whatever platform he decides to take. Right. And I think also you have to remember Facebook's got meta. Yeah. Your boy needs he he needs his metaverse. He needs something in right. that in that in that realm to leverage. Right. So I you know because um, I do want to talk about the financing here. That is really interesting. Um, but I want to point out something you said very key here, Camille. Uh, is the curating of message and curating of of power right? And so um, the excuse me the power of free freedom of speech. So. Again, you have Elon who is trying to purchase, you know, ideally people's, you know, black Twitter, Ukrainian Twitter, African Twitter, whatever Twitter, you know, there is. Right. And then saying that I'm trying to curate like what is identifiably 
uh, freedom of speech. And then you have the same way on the other end, again, just making a quick tie in here that you have DeSantis saying, trying to curate what exactly is proper speech, you know, in, in, in advancement of our issues, like what is proper speech and what is proper reaction. And so you have these two entities kind of having these weird conversations surrounding what they deem as proper communication in exchange of ideas. And we're in a very tenuous part of our world where you have these two men, you know, and then people behind them really trying to curate and, and tell the world, this is what I think is proper speech. And I feel like people have to really pay attention to that. So let, moving on to like the fine, I'm sorry, if you, unless I don't, if you guys want to comment on that. Um, I, I would just, I would just say, you know, um, we, we've all read about this on and read articles about this on platforms that other billionaires, mm-hmm. <laughs> multi-millionaires own. Right. So this is not new. And also I think, you know, to, I, I can't articulate her point as well, but you have to read um, Isabel Wilker, Wilkerson's book cast and mm-hmm. the way she talks yeah. about the parallels between the strategies utilized in the Jim Crow South and then the way that the um, Third Reich, there you go, um, you know, studied us and doubled down on certain things and did all the things to normalize mm. the instability yeah. that we all are right now shuddering at. Yeah. Um, that's a fascinating thought. Part. I never thought about it like, you know, the caste system of communication. That's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't even really, you know, I want to kind of peel that away a little bit. So like when you think, when you hear about the casting and communication, um, you know, let's explore that. What do you, what do you, what do you feel about that? Like, what do you mean by that? It's well, 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 specific in cast, it talks about, you know, the, the articles that became the type of things that news media would print and talk about mm. that normalize the discrimination, you know, that yeah. normalize the systemic hierarchy in, in the caste system. Yeah. But also, you know, think about it from, a, from think about it from a politics perspective or, or knowledge. You know how much stuff my kids tell me they learned off TikTok? Yeah. Oh, here, I'm going to do this right quick. I learned it off of TikTok. And they learned it in TikTok in what, 30 seconds? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're very short blurb. Um, most of us probably learned that Elon bought Twitter right? on Twitter, on Facebook, on Insta, on whatever. And we learned about it. And that was all you know, was that he bought Twitter for $44 billion. Right. Nobody knows that he is in an agreement right. with, until you click to that next level of information. I think that's kind of like a cast level, you know, level, like how informed do you require your people to be, to be participating members of this community, you know, and to, right. to have an informed opinion about it. Like I know he bought Twitter because that's what Twitter told me. Right. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is that there's a whole another six plus months of due diligence, documenting, negotiation, performance, structuring deals, Perhaps the fact that he's got to also leverage $22 billion out of at Tesla. Right. All of those things are right. still real and have to occur. But that, like, by the time we get to a broken deal, however many months from now, if that happens, right. nobody will care. All they'll know is that Elon tried to buy Twitter and they wouldn't let him. Right. So, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tiff. You wanted to j- chime in here. And I was, I was going to say part of what that lends itself to is, is it's what is moderation, right. right? The content moderation, 
and the algorithm, which is what the whole Fix the Feed movement is about, right? And the Change the Terms Coalition, where that is, you know, the fixing of the algorithm or disclosing the middle, the business model and the moderation practices, because like Camille is saying, why is that showing up in your feed more than maybe something else? Maybe there was an article about the fact that this was just a purchase agreement, but based on the algorithm, that's not pushed up. And so when you talk about a cash system and what information is deemed more valuable than others, that's the whole problem that people were having with Facebook. That's the concern around Twitter. And that is actually part of, I believe, what happens in China today. Like Mm -hmm. Musk is building a Tesla plan or is in talks to build a Tesla plan in China. Mm -hmm. China doesn't have free speech. Right. But they like some wealthy people, you know, say some things that are, you know, not nice about the government, but not everybody. Mm -hmm. And so you get to kind of that type of cast perspective as well when you're looking at if we're not clear on what are the moderation policies and how do they how does the ai work yeah I'm sorry. can i ask a quick question yeah so one of the and tiffany i'm interested in so one of the things they say that you know with the idea that he buys twitter that twitter's going to go private and being private would ultimately allow them to focus on long-term projects like implementing this you know greater free speech hopefully fixing the feed and my question for you is, and I know that they say Twitter's, you know, revenue is mostly ad based. If we fix the feed and if we, um, you know, adjust the algorithm or, or open it up to a more public, do you public, uh, you know, um, platform, do you hamper the ability to be successful with ads? And if that's the case, are you going to negatively impact the financial performance of the company? And so that's interesting, right? There's been a few articles written about how, you know, Musk broke the rules when he paid that amount of cash for, you know, Twitter. And so how is that even going to work as far as business revenue? One of the things that came out when Facebook changed their algorithm is that it broke, um, it broke the way that the, that some companies were getting, um, kind of just natural views of their content. Mm-hmm. And so those companies had to pay more to get your, to get their content out. And so, <laughs> and so it's interesting. It depends on what he's talked about is more of like this membership and paying for certain things. And so if he, if he doesn't want the ad revenue, then the only way he can have some sort of a revenue is a more of a membership based model or for, you know, for you to pay for certain features. I don't know if that's going to be the same amount of revenue coming in, but that's one way to do it. Um, I think the ad, if you, if you remove the bots and you fix the algorithm, people are still going to pay for ads. It's just the amount of money they may need to spend for the out for the ads to be more visible. So I know on Facebook, like if you ever pay for ads on Facebook versus LinkedIn, LinkedIn ads are extremely expensive but they're expensive because there's a lot of data. You can really dig deep. I think for me, a little bit deeper than Facebook. Mm-hmm. I spend less money on Facebook ads than LinkedIn ads. And then that's also an audience thing. Maybe LinkedIn values their, you know, they feel like they have more accurate data because of the type of people that are on LinkedIn. Yeah. And so I think that his ad model is going to be closer to Facebook, but it could possibly be more profitable 
if he can say, look, I verified these people and I don't have bots, that my data is more accurate and therefore your ads are going to be more successful. Okay. So I saw something uh, interesting about the monetization and I don't know if this is true or not. And Camille, if you can chime in on this, um, one of the, the buy-ins he got from investors, because again, people think like Elon just had $44 billion laying around and no, he actually had to, uh, to your point, I've heard you said, I've heard 21, you've said $22 billion. He needed to um, actually put up that his own money. And part of that was what part of that, his Tesla stock and why Tesla you know, when dived at the end of April because of all the uh, fluidity of his uh, of his uh, uh, passion project of buying Twitter. But one of the things he his buy ins of getting investors was saying that he was going to monetize tweets, particularly in the idea of charging a fee for quoting tweets or embedded tweets. And my thought process was like, I don't know if anybody's going to want to pay. You know, they're, they're they've been used for over a decade. Of, of doing this for free and is it something to where they're like all right now i'm gonna i'm gonna be willing to pay to quote somebody or to put an embedded link within my tweet or are we so the human condition has been so you know that we've so used to doing something like all right like uh, it's kind of like netflix you know just add extra dollar on there i don't care add two extra dollars on there like is there do you think the human condition be like no nah, i'm good i'm going i'm going to another platform or do you think like People will pay the money because they're so used to this way of communicating. So I'm going to say, I think behaviorally, Tiffany probably knows better how this happens. But my guess generally is that elasticity of demand. Mm -hmm. We will not pay more than X for something until we decide we're going to pay more than X for something. Right. I wouldn't dare pay certain prices for, you know, for things, but then I get in the airport terminal and I'm like, you know, it's whatever. I need this bottle of water or, right, you know, right, what right. I need. or, you know, to your point on Netflix, I have no idea what I pay on a month per, per next on Netflix. Right. I started so long ago, right. but if you ask me, I'm going to be highly offended. My guess is that for that to work and that, I don't know, I don't know tech behavior as well, but my guess is for that to work, you're going to have to, to get it mainstream. You're going to have to get people to just do a basic subscription where they have the right to do those retweets, reposts, whatever. Because if you do it on like a per whatever basis, you're going to lose, um, I think, traction. I, 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 although I don't know, you have like the Fortnite model where they get a certain amount of cash. But again, I think your, um, you know, your 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 user base on Twitter, like I don't see me signing up for that, and I don't think a lot of the a lot of people will i I darn sure don't see my kids signing up to pay for for social media yeah it's built in so they already started where if you pay i think a dollar a month you could edit your tweets so that's Mm. already a thing Mm. and so um and you got to think too like you said about your kids in Fortnite. one of the things that you're already seeing in technology is this idea of monetization right you think about nfts which is basically like a GIF or a JPEG, a picture of something that you can now sell. That kind of model where our kids are in a like virtual world and paying for these little pieces of assets, that type of mentality is already being bred into everything that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a long time coming. That's not something that's new. It's more newer to, I think, our generation and, and above where you're like, dang, something else. But at the same time, we also pay a membership fee for things we don't use, like gyms. And like right. I was just looking today. Significantly right? higher prices. Fee. 
yeah, that are coming out that I need to cancel that I haven't canceled. And so the idea is if I get, if you buy it to try it out, you're going to forget to cancel it, right? Mm -hmm. And so memberships are always a good business model. And so I think that people will with added benefits, they're not going to pay directly for that, but it has to be some sort of added benefits and the idea of monetization, right? And so Instagram, TikTok, there's already monetization on those platforms. Twitter's already added Twitter spaces. They are adding all of these things. And so they're moving to the model that's similar to the other platforms. And so yeah. it could work out. You know, I, I so I, I asked the question, because, but my answer, my gut feeling is that um, they understand the human capacity to want to continue to communicate. And so there is a value, there's an intrinsic value of always wanting to be in the know and then always wanting to communicate ideas or be a part of that exchange of ideas so people will you know i don't know what that number is but there is a number and bigger brains than me have already figured out there is a number in which people will pay for that and to the point where you mentioned and this is where i want to take this conversation about the price of data right so i remember i was watching this thing on netflix last year i forget the show um anyway I'm, i'm it's gonna kill me but anyway they talked about how like in facebook in a 2016 election they there was this company um, based out of um, Russia, whatnot, that really took data and was curating and figure out how people's voting patterns. And it, it because based on their likes and based, like they would do things where these social media um, phenomena. Remember, they're not happening anymore because people caught on. But like it was, it seemed like every week there was a challenge, right? And based off of people's um, involving themselves in this challenge, they were able to take data from them. And be like, this person thinks this way. And then they were able to then interact. Like, how does their parent, I don't, it was weird. Like, it was a spider web of, like, all your information and even your family. So my father, who's not even on Facebook, they had information on him based off of my interactions on social media. And so it would became this invaluable thing to where, like, and then a private company bought it where they couldn't even find a price. But they talk about what is the price of data? Like the price of our information is so invaluable. They said it's going to be more than gold, you know, especially in the future. So to your point, Tiffany, you know, there's probably investors who looked at Elon and said that, yeah, that is a great buy because there's a lot of value that we haven't even data mined yet, you know, as far as how people communicate because communication is invaluable. Right. Would you would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. And so there are so many things that are being built or have already been built on AI. Right. And so AI is the big next wave, machine learning, all of that automation. Everything right now is about automation. And be it, so companies have been collecting data for years, but haven't had the capacity to actually go through and analyze that data and then decide how to actually make it actionable. Right. And so it's not even just having the data, it's having the models to tell you what to do with that data, like the company you're mentioning, where you put a scenario behind it and say, okay, now I can categorize it and how do I apply it to voting? Now let me put this behind it and let me see how they react to my whatever I'm selling. Right. And so that data is so valuable. And so, you, like I said, he already has, um, he's already building AI models. You think about how important that is for Tesla as a company, for his AI robot that he's building, for any other random company <laughs> that he decides he wants to make. 
that data to be able to say, this is what people are interested in, is what they're talking about. You can like tweets. Now you can dislike tweets. You can downgrade tweets. You can see in Twitter what's trending, what's not trending. You can see people's reactions to quotes. If you ever watch Billions, which I love, they did an episode where they talked about somebody wrote a program that could essentially scrub Twitter to only show certain tweets. And so that it made a company's tank stop, right? Mm -hmm. And so being able to write different programs that even manipulate what's visible in in a social media platform. And so being able to have the data to play around with that, I mean, right. and it's, I can't even tell you. It's immeasurable. And to the point, though, I, I, I was thinking about how, like, in that Netflix program, they talked about it, highlighted how, they controlled elections, right? And we talked about in this podcast how they were able to control messaging through those elections. And they were able to create narratives that people like, I didn't even, initially, I didn't know I thought about this until they put it in front of me. And I'm not sure a lot of people, and I, I joked in the beginning of my opening that Elon's trying to be a Bond villain. Well, SpaceX, which is owned, another um, company owned by <laughs> Elon, um, they recently, and by the time you hear this podcast, it'll be in April. So last month, the end of April, they had a six. They launched six, their sixth satellite in April alone. Their sixth satellite launch. So he now mm-hmm. not, is in one month. So like he literally has, you know, I don't even know how, know how many satellites this guy had. And I know in the beginning of the Ukrainian crisis and with Russia, there was talk about you know somebody made to ask you, can you move one of your satellites to help out with this? And I was like thinking like that's really odd that we're like privatizing, you know communication and war to the point where this guy's like, yeah, okay, I'll move one of my satellites. And like, do we really want somebody that not only has, we don't know how many satellites that's monitoring what God knows what, you know, about, you know, how our daily interactions, but also now he's going to be in control of our communication. And that is a lot of powerful one person. And on top of that, he's going to have access to our data. Like, and I don't think people are really thinking this through, like we talk about freedom, like in our exchange for us wanting to actually, and I'm not saying us, cause I don't think that's, it's not applying to me, but the people who want to be able to expl- uh, exchange the right wing ideals, what are you going to be giving up in, in, in exchange for that? Like, what is the freedom that you're actually going to be, you know, uh, um, going to be taken away your freedom. You're going to have your freedom of monitoring yourself, your freedom of, you know, expression. Yeah. But are you really? Because he can be able to curate that expression in however way he sees it. Am I being a little bit too far off here? Or what do you think, Tiffany? No, that's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. So with that company that you were talking about, it was that coupled with the AI change. But the AI change on Facebook did is it made those extremist posts more visible because they got a lot of interaction. And that interaction on something that extreme made it more visible. And so it makes it there's repercussions on if the AI model changes, it controls what we see. And then you can take that information. If you want certain tweets more visible, then it can for you to like for it the election, it can help skew a result a certain way. And so you can it is the ability to take your words, your data to be able to use it in whatever way they see fit. And it's not just must. There are, if you look back, a few billionaires that have bought newspapers or right. communication platforms 
or are trying to build them. And right. that is the next age is this data. Right. And so where people, you know, before were very into oil and all these things and that because they saw the value in that. Right. Now as we move more mm. digital, now mm. they see the value in those communication platforms and the actual data mm. to skew things certain ways. Right. So I'm that's that's really great. So like it's like the before it was gold, right? That billionaire and then it was then it was um then it was uh, uh, data. I mean, excuse me. Then it was oil. Now it's data is like the new, the new oil. Like strike, and so you have someone like Jeff Bezos, you know, who's one of again one of the more powerful men in, on the planet, owns a dozen of communications, including the Washington Post, right? And so, and then you have someone like Bloomberg, right, who owns Bloomberg News. So we have these oligarchs who are controlling, like all these different forms of communication that is like, I don't really think people would understand like that's not healthy. And I, I, I don't know how you stop that, but I will say this um, back. we talked about, you know, uh, we just talked, I just mentioned how these people back in the twenties were owning all these different types of things and, and how there had to be antitrust laws put in place in order to stop people from, you know, taking over certain sectors and controlling it. Um, and it had to be antitrust laws breaking up the breaking up the uh, um, the 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 amount of industry. Funny enough, to the point where that's where we got all these different newspapers in general because they had to they had to put in antitrust laws and it's and it and allowed for all the different newspapers, including um, the, again in the civil rights movement, they had a lot of black people were then able to start newspapers in order to get out the anti lynching. Um, good at IDB Wells and all that. So that there's a very clear history of antitrust laws helping breaking up monopolies in our particular in, in this world that people now don't want. They want free industry and they want free enterprise. Free again being the one the the optimum word here. But the idea that now freedom is you know in we have to like govern what that freedom actually looks like. And I'll say this one last point. I was actually, and I know I'm, I'm still talking, but one last point here. I remember I was in, in law school, and my uh, I was uh, second year, and this guy who does corporate law came to talk to us, and he said, you know, he's a corporate lawyer. And he, at the time when Exxon and was um in doing a a merger with another, uh, forget what gas company, and he was working on that deal, and he's like, you know, um, and he said, I just I'm working on that. I just got done dealing with AT&T. He was a big wig in, in uh, DC. And he said, I find it fascinating that people are like always so great to see like they like mergers. And he said, I don't understand that. He said, I don't think people understand the idea of mergers. And he said, you know, when mergers happen, the public hurts. He said, I'm not, he said it pays my bills. It's great, you know, but I'm on one side of it. But um, the idea that mergers actually help society, he said, is really, there's no basis of that. In fact, it curates pricing and it actually takes away a market. And, you know, you see people with Spirit Airlines and Spirit and, um, forget, uh, the the other airline that's, the yeah, they're, they're joining. It's like people don't understand that that's actually not a good thing. So now we look at in, in communication, one person or multiple people, like it's in a, a, a short list, holding on to communication that can't be good for anybody. I don't care what side of the aisle, political aisle you're on, you know, and then Camille, like, what are you, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, I got a couple of things. I'd like to remind you, um, one of our, our, our prime examples of 
the ability to control, have enough money to control media, and then, you know, jump into political forays, you have uh, former Mayor Bloomberg, yeah. who financed his own campaign. Right. Um, and it is the Bloomberg we talk about. Right. And who can we go to for that high level information? So um, the ability to control the market is at the end of the day, whatever the market is, is the goal of anybody who's an investor or an active, um, you know, a, an active owner in, in any of these settings. Um, the shrinking of the market is absolutely a concern, right? Mm-hmm. Because the more you people you have to be beholden to or who have the ability to kind of either enforce the standard or challenge the standard, the better, right? You create right. competition, you create, it's the free market. Right. Um, what you end up though, with running into is this stagnation of what, what have we always done? You know, what have we always done? And I, I want to go back to that, that, that corporate lawyers um, point. One of the things that, you know, we talk about the value of Twitter and I know this is a little bit off topic, no, it's great. but talk about the, the, the value of black Twitter, you best believe the uh, diversity, equity and inclusion metrics on this deal will not reflect any of the, you know, diversity that you have represented on Twitter. Mm. Um, And so that's another reminder, right? Mm. That at the end of the day, the people who have the money, people who have established themselves as the go-to players in these scenarios are really just playing with their chess pieces and their toys and trading baseball cards, you know, one way or another. Um, but, you know, as we sat here and talk about it, I'm starting to wonder, like, is, is, is this the next 2024 presidential candidate? Yeah, <laughs> like, I've seen that. Have we, are, are, we, are we basically ushering in our third party candidate who actually can win something? See, Camille, actually, I'm glad you said that because, again, there's a, a, a ha that's why I, I did it, because... DeSantis is obviously going for 2024, but I've actually seen people talk about, you know, Elon being a 2024 candidate for president. And I said, that's really fascinating because you have these two men who are operating. I said, I said, I get it. said my opening perpendicular exchanges of communication and power. And, and so it's like, are we heading towards this thing where we have these, there's like, it's almost like, they're, they're almost, there's a destiny of them meeting at some point, whether they're going to be working together or against one another. But I see it because he's, cumul- you know, as far as Elon is concerned, he's accumulating so much power and it's going to be so unchecked. And it's like, how do we even defeat? We saw someone like Trump and Trump is not on the financial scale that someone like Elon is as mm-hmm. far as influence. Yeah, he might have, he's famous. And we saw what fame does and fame actually and, you, you know, Camille, you're actually really involved in politics. When somebody's popular, it really affects how people perceive their campaign, whether they have the ability to actually legislate or govern. That's not the that's not what's important. It's their popularity. And Elon not only is, you know, immensely popular, but he's he's accumulating power that we've never really seen before. And this part. Well, remember, I agree with you a little fully. And remember that that accumulation of power requires you to make other make the right people's lives and metrics better off so if you 
Because mind you, this Twitter deal, everybody's like, oh, we'll see if it closes. Somebody had to get out there to be the one to buy it. Right. Once he gets out there and he's willing to buy it at a premium, and if he messes around and closes it, do you know how much money is going to be pouring into him? How much capital he's going to have access to? How many more people will make more money? The fact that you are taking this entity, uh, and, and I want to make this one point, you mentioned um, politics and antitrust. There has to be various levels of federal regulatory review yeah. before this deal closes. Yeah. Any challenges in that round helps compete at the 2024 election, because look at this government that won't allow business to be free, the market to be free. Right. So he, he, he's positioned very well. And I think he's positioned to gain even more support, especially if he could keep the Twitter buyout, take it private and things run smoothly enough. For X number of years, you don't have to be perfect for a long time. Right, you got to be perfect, long, good enough, good enough, long enough for the right people to make the right money and see the right outcomes. That he's no longer the villain. Um, but I, I, I absolutely agree. This may very well be the third party candidate or a coalescing of powers to just absolutely make sure that the the, the left goes to the go you know goes in the loser column in the next couple of elections. But I, I, I don't I don't view Elon Musk as a um you know a party loyalist no. loyal, loyalist and yeah. I think that he will um you know make continue to make the metrics work best for him. Right. I don't I don't know I don't think so either and to the point where and I'm sorry to I'm gonna let you um, jump in here one moment, but I found it fascinating with him that he said a statement that um, I, I voted for. It's weird. Like it's the old Barack Obama thing. You know, I would have voted for Barack Obama 30 times, you know, like you, you saw on, on get out, but he said, uh, I vote, you know, in 2008, I, I, I voted for Barack Obama, but it's not the party that I recognized when I voted in 2008. And then it was like, someone brought up this fascinating statement. Like, People always talk about how like Democrats have moved further left, which is not actually intrinsically true. Um, in fact, um, incrementally they've moved to more; they've become more of a centered party. Now, it may not represent in the loudest voices in the room, but politically speaking, that is not true. And but the the party that's really changed though is the is the Republican Party, where you actually have candidates and people in office who are saying that. The 2020 election was was fake. That's like their actual platform, and that would not have been a thing 20 years ago, where people would have ran on such an extremist position that elections are fake and that people, you know, people are, you know, not really voting and all these things, all these extreme. But that is in the normal. That is in the nomenclature of the Republican narrative that has been. Again, we talked about you said Camille caste system of normalizing of the way people see information. I find it fascinating that Elon brought that up to say that, you know, I want to see more, I, you know, the Democrats are, have been extreme, but it's like he's ignoring a particular sector of the country or communication that has been identifiably right-wing and identifiably extreme, but he hasn't castorized them as, as extreme. He's only castized Democrats as being the more extreme party which I thought was a fascinating statement for a long-term play. You follow me here? Yes, absolutely. That's the votes he can pick off. Yeah. He need to pick them off. 
Yeah. If he's going to be third party, he got to get everybody who's already dissolution with the Democratic Party to have confidence. And I think this is the thing that we we keep running into is that, you know, talking about the instability um, that Tiffany pointed out, it's always instable until you get used to them tremors, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's until yeah. you get used to it, then you're like, okay, yeah. we move like this. You know, it's yeah. a certain level of noise that we operate with. Right. And so it's it, once you get people comfortable with challenging the norm that they have ascribed to, right? it's fair game. Yeah, that's very true. And one of the things that he said, too, is that it's this idea that Democrats or the left are more policing. He feels like the right more hates everybody. And he feels like they're being more open, more honest. Just let them say what they need to say. You don't have to like it. And not really taking into account the consequences for that type of speech being rampant, with, right? which is going to lend itself, hopefully, to people wanting more regulations around it, regulations around these communication platforms, the regulation around the internet itself. And so that is something that, you know, it's going to be interesting as you continue down this path of, is it really free speech if it has real life consequences? Right. So he's normalizing extremist communication to the point where, like, to... You know, Camille's pointing to your point, Tiffany, that we'll sit there and look at it like, yeah, this is okay. I, th- I liken it to like an abusive relationship, right? Like people look at things and, you know, and, and they, somebody who's in an abusive relationship, like inside that relationship, like, this is normal. Yeah, the way they keep hitting me is normal. The way we communicate is normal. This is normal. To outside looking like that is not normal. Like they cannot keep beating up on you like this. And you're like, I don't see it because I am. Uh, I'm, it's, you know, Stockholm syndrome. I'm used to the way things operate. We're getting to a space to where extremism is the new normal of communication. And then you have somebody propagating this thought that extremism is, should be normalized in any form of communication is really problematic because then we've moved the needle to such a place to where if the, if the arbiter of communication is telling you this is normal, then we can't even govern like, well, that's not decent. That's not human decency, right? You're- so, Kamar, I think the funny thing about this is, is that your, your reference this to being a, a perpendicular path is so hilarious because we're, we're over here on one side of this conversation analyzing scenario where, um, you know, the left is too policing. And right. so, you know, we need to take Twitter private and, and and preserve whatever chance we have to have public, you know, free speech. But then on the right side, we've got Governor DeSantis and the Don't Say Gay bill and the and, and you know and the storm that any level of opposition has has come from it. In addition to you know book banning and, right. and the like, where again it's. We so support free speech, except for this speech right here. And so the right. hypocrisy, hypocrisy of it all um, is not lost on me. And it's so frustrating because it's like we are left as, you know, intelligent American citizens required to be able to dissect those two things and not see that, not see the hypocrisy in, in, in them. Right. Uh, Tiffany, what are your thoughts? Man, that's, I think that's true. I was just on Twitter earlier today and I saw... Marjorie Taylor Greene, who tweeted this picture that goes, um, what, what's, it's a meme that says, what's so hard to understand? There's two genders. Mm-hmm. And so when, if you think about actual science and, you know, gender and sex, 
and the the nuances in that, the fact that people don't know that, that, you know, there were some people, most people that I saw, of course, from my feed were like against it. But the idea that people are like, yes, I'm a white male, heterosexual Christian, and this is what I want to see. You're like, but, you know, that's great. And that's what you want to see. There's also some truth to, you know, this idea of what actually defines gender and sex. And so, again, it's this moderation of, how can you pick and choose what pieces of something that is real mm-hmm. that you want to talk about and see right. and who controls that? That is so scary. Right. That's just so crazy. And that is where we are. Who controls this data? Who controls what we can see and who's going to be able to help to balance that? Mm. So um, I think we should uh, go ahead and leave it there. I, I want to give you guys your final thoughts on like we talked about just communication and, and, or anything like how we talked about it. Uh, give me your final thoughts on this. Um, I'll, I'll start with you, Camille, if you're okay, you're ready to do that. Yeah, no, my, my, thank you again um, for having me. It's been a pleasure to, to speak with Tiffany too. We haven't met, but I'm excited to learn more about her and what she's doing. Um, but you know, my final thoughts here are, you know, just don't, don't, don't get misled by the tweet, right? Yeah, <laughs> That's right. my final thought. Right. Don't get misled by the tweet, you know, do a deeper dive and be informed. I think that we require, um, you know, we should require as much diligence of ourselves as we want our leaders to have. And the reality is that anybody can take a public company private with the right amount of money. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's there comes a point where we are wasting our product productive time focusing on what everybody else is executing. And so I encourage us to continue to, you know, carve out our own spaces mm. <laughs> in these transactions and, and in these platforms to make sure that, you know, we're not just part of the commodity that's being, you know, assigned and transferred versus having our own. But I, I think that um, there is much to come from this. It's going to be good theater, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I look forward to, to hearing how this all plays out. But I, I don't think I, if I'm a betting woman, I'm going to say 50 percent of the two deals we talked about today don't close. I'm really? not sure which one. Mm. I think 50. I think one of them definitely ain't finna close. <laughs> and I might, I might say zero percent, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna be wise and go with fifty. I'm gonna go with it's a possible. Mm. I actually would, I actually would agree with that, but I actually think it's, it's gonna be Twitter that's gonna one that closes. Personally speaking, uh, that would be the one I would bet on. Yeah, Tiffany, what are your thoughts? I don't know. When Camille was talking about, um, you know, owning our own spaces, maybe Miss Black Planet. And right, the amount of data that was there, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> and how important. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about black. That, I'm sorry. I know we went to the club, but I, I, black pet. That's fascinating. Like, why, why can't black people? Why haven't we moved into a space of owning our own spaces? Like, what is stopping us? And I'm sorry, I'm supposed to close, but I really wanted to ask this question. So, you know, just indulge me for a moment, like to really explore that. Um, like, why don't you I think we've done that? You know, I think it's going to take the right person that's going to be more cutthroat, right? If you look at, um, is it Byron Allen that owns the Weather Channel? Yeah. Yeah. Right? And how he's been able to move in the media space. You need somebody that really understands the space, the cutthroatness of business, and understanding the value. And I think the thing with Black Planet 
was not understanding the value and how to monetize it, probably. I don't know the story of Black Planet. But somebody has to be able to do what's necessary to build the platform, own it, not sell out fast, get the, the, you know, the investment needed to really take it forward. But all of these, all of these social media networks is just databases, UI. Like you got to get the infrastructure in place. You got to get the thing running properly, but there's so much space out there. And I think people are looking for it. It just needs to be more advertised. Like the way people jump on Clubhouse should show mm. that there is room. Yeah. To build something new. Right. Like, and it's funny that Clubhouse is funny because it died out really quickly. It was like a phoenix. It came up so quick and then it died out. But um, I was fascinated by Clubhouse because it would seem like all our folks, I'm talking about black folks, were all on Clubhouse. But Clubhouse was not black owned. (laughs) So, like, we actually propped it up this, again, this social media platform that was all our intuitiveness and conversations and communication, but we weren't even, we weren't even in the benefit of that. Like, and I saw, I, I was, I'm, I'm fascinated. Like, why is it that we cannot create a platform, you know, cause clearly people follow us wherever we go. So what is, what is stopping it? I don't, I, I don't know what the impetus is going to be. Is it, we need certain amount of stake, uh, uh, I would say celebrity stakeholders, to say, hey, we're all over here now. Everybody's over here. The Beyonce's, you know, the Cardi B's, even, you know, the, the, the Travis Scott, whatever. Like, whomever to say, you know, popularity stakeholders say, hey, we're over here now. Let's communicate on this particular app. And maybe that's what it is. The same way Jay-Z told everybody to stop buying, you know, <laughs> stop buying this particular uh, and start drinking, you know, Ace of Spades. You know what I mean? And so, like, maybe that's what it is. The social cachet needs to be there. But I... I I don't know why, because I know when Elon was it first prompted, everybody was like, where are we going? Where are we going? Nobody was like, nobody had an answer. Nobody knew where the, where to go. Everybody's like, I don't know where to go. And I'll just wait till everybody else is going. But nobody was like, hey, I have this app over here that's the same or better than Twitter that hasn't really been utilized yet. Black owned. Let's all try to communicate on that side. You know, and I, I don't know why it that hasn't have. happened. They missed a, po- a moment. That was a perfect moment. They could have called, they should have got Issa Rae on the phone and been like, Issa, I know you're in media and music and, mm-hmm. you know, you got content, promote this. And I don't know if it's not there or people were not ready. They, I agree. They missed the movement. They missed, they missed the opportunity. Go ahead, Camille. I think it's a couple of things. First of all, if you're going to get somebody, some some big name stakeholders in there, you got to give them equity yeah. and you got to get them in the financing and you got to be a part of that. And then you got to negotiate that. So most of our platforms don't have the initial capital to spend on those kind of deals, let alone the reinforcements to execute them um, and not go through a whole bunch of, you know, takeover and, and mission questioning. But I think also to, to the point of where's everybody going to go? You don't, you got to find users. You got to get user traction to make this go viral, to make whatever it is go viral. And I mean, I've, I've heard of, I've heard of rapid social. I've heard of fan base. I've heard of another one that's not coming to mind um, that are new efforts at trying to, you know, help people of color monetize and have their own social media platform. Um, and again, you got to convince everybody who's on Twitter, TikTok, whatever, to take some of their screen time and transition it. And they've got to build relationships and a presence and learn your system and everything. 
um, and, and getting, getting users to not, you know, give up before they finish that, that onboarding is, is, is a real tall task that, you know, takes a lot of, you know, presence and reinsurance. Like I'm interested, like, you know, like, for example, it's not black on, but Robin hood, you know, yeah. what's Robin hood success and, and user rate at this point compared to, you know, a couple months, years ago. Actually, Robinhood. There was an article that came out that they actually lost a lot of money in this last. Because people, um, a lot of people who are like normal people, you're not high level investors. Um, they lost a lot of money in the in the market um, in the last couple of weeks. Um, I was, you know, you guys watch Billions, and I, there's another show on so, on Showtime called uh, The Rise of Uber. It's it's all about the Uber. Um, uh, it talks about Uber, the, the, basically the creation of Uber. And I was fascinated watching. There's a lot of things to pull from it. One of the things I thought about was like, man, like this guy really created Uber because he saw there was a need of um, tax, the ride sharing service that wasn't being implemented because people were tired of taking taxis, especially black people. He talked about black people in New York and minorities. Taxis were passing them by. And he was like, you know, there's a market there and there's. There's something there, and he's and he's very exploitative. And then he got investors to buy into the idea that there's actually a market or a place for ride sharing services. And I thought to myself, why, you know, especially in Silicon Valley, why are there no black investors, or not even black investors, but like really no black, you know, hedge fund managers? There are, there are, but like there's a few, there's a few, but like. I was thinking, like, you know, if somebody came with an idea and, like, I want to create this space, where are the tech bros in that look like us that are going to really, you know, create spaces or a new social app phenomenon that I don't see? You know, not just, like, in the, on the lower scale. I'm talking about creating the next Uber, creating the next Twitter. I, you're laughing, Camille. Like, what is, what's so funny? Because we were wrapping up, and I'm not going to go into a whole other, <laughs> no, whole other session with you about this right now. But I mean, it's the same way we, we can't get access to capital to buy a house. People mm. are doing metrics, you know, data drives everything. Right. The, if those private equity, those private capital VC funds, they, have, they are reviewing financials that have a certain level of metrics that they've got to achieve and that they are very committed to achieving. And, and remember, they're hunting for unicorns. Mm. They're not hunting for mid-grade, they're hunting for unicorns. Mm. And if they're hunting for unicorns, nine times out of 10, their confidence in somebody who looks like you and I bringing them and executing a unicorn is very, very low. However, if you bring a colleague who has the same alum status or Bingo. various other connections or, or even took some other company halfway there, right. that has the, 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 the support or the, you know, the um, recommendation of an esteemed colleague, right? You're more likely to pu- you you look at the public um, the the private equity space. The representation of minorities is probably it is it is worse than it is in tech, and neither of them are anything to write at home about. Right. So that's why you're not getting both. You know, you're not going to get an alignment of there, where you have limited alignments of the of those strategies because we're not generally viewed as the carriers of unicorns. Which is fascinating because we are the, we are viewed as the carriers of communication and interest and popularity. So why can't we be the carriers of this thing, but not the other? You know, I think that's a very fascinating, and that's another podcast in of itself. 
you know, to explore. Yeah. But I really do feel like, like, there's, we already know there's value in our, in the black experience, but is, is there value in somebody commoditizing the black experience exclusively? I think so. But why hasn't anybody done that yet? You know, um, you see it all the time in entertainment. It's the exact, the the exact same model. We are absolutely the content. We are seldom the owners. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sorry, Tiffany. I know I stole your thunder on your closing thought. Is there something you wanted to communicate that I jumped on top of it? I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no. For your black VC conversation though, I think there's a, so there's a, a organization called black VC that is training and bringing up black VCs. There is Arlen Hamilton that does a lot of um, investing. There's Felicia Hatcher that's leading um, Pharrell Williams Black Ambition Fund. And so I think those are all people that can definitely have that conversation um, with you. I I was just wrapping up with the fact that one, we need to be more, one, the creating of our own platforms, following the model to really launch those platforms successfully mm-hmm. and following that model where, you know, technical founders may not do that, but it's really needed. And so I think people need to have that encouragement to keep going if that's something you were thinking about doing to really, you know, make it work. Two is going to be to, we need people to be more civically engaged. And so as you're seeing with Ronda Santos and even with Elon and just this idea of content moderation of, you know, new laws needing to be written and people just need to be more engaged overall because this is, some of this can be impacted, I think, at that level. And three is really support movements like Fix the Feed where, that's a coalition of 60 organizations that's really talking about fixing these algorithms, protecting people, people equally, and, you know, showing us the receipts, right? Disclosing business models and moderation practices. And so when you think about this topic, I think those kind of work together where people in general just need to be more aware of where their data is going and more aware of what's happening in politics and and the laws that are being written and unwritten, I guess. Dope, dope. So I, so I'm sorry. What was that, Camille? No, I just said that part. When she said unwritten, I was like that part. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So I like to end um, every program on just a uh, a love letter to Black people. And so, uh, dear Black people, we just got done having a thoughtful dialogue on the objectives of just not only uh, social media and conversations, but also these egotistical white men and their endeavors. And uh, we find ourselves doing evaluating of how not not only the how but the why. And ultimately, how these actions will affect our community. Um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I thought it was actually incredible. Um, and, you know, something that made me think about just the value of, you know, ourselves in, in this new data world and our de- that value of our experiences. Um, I will tell you that as long as the world spins on its access, rich, powerful men will have their say in how the world should operate and how they should curate communication. Uh, for nothing else than to express the idioms of their own personal wants and needs. I'm not sure there's a clear, identifiable uh, way to avoid their narcissistic path of destruction, um, even if it's going to this path of, at least at the 2024 election. Um, But what should be evident is how both these men and men of their ilk have displayed their actions and shown nothing more than an exhibition of their ego 
or um, you know, better term, I should say, an exhibition of their ego tripping. So with that being said, we're going to ride out with this song. And uh, I appreciate y'all for listening to this podcast. And we are out. Mercy. MC in the world You got to give me, give me mine Cause I'm heavy when I weigh it Watch the way I say it Ego trip I changed my pitch up Smack my bitch up I never did it The flavor's being bucked But brothers ain't getting it Get it?